Okay, we're here with uh, Game Dev Grit Podcast, Episode 4, and our guest today is Tom Oliver. So, Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so, I am a newbie game dev. I've been doing game development now for a couple months. Uh, before that, I was doing a lot of, like, 3D animation, 2D uh, illustration, and I just kind of jump around in mediums all the time. So, game dev is one of the things I've wanted to do ever since I was a little kid, and I finally decided, screw it. Uh, it's time to be a real boy and get it done. So uh, right now I'm working on a 2D side scroller called, uh, well, the demo is called Azumi and the Vertical Slice. It's like a little bit joke. Uh, but the full game is unnamed, but it's going to be like a throwback Sega Genesis style platformer. And uh, it's done in an engine called Construct 3, which is all web-based and doesn't require any coding. So it's a good way to kind of quickly jump into making games. Uh, but I'm also learning Python right now to get, coding chops down so hopefully the next game will be done in a big boy game engine yeah and we'll post that game in the show notes so you guys can all um go play it and uh, i think there's one thing we should mention is that we come from similar backgrounds and that we both worked in other mediums but we were always influenced by video games right absolutely yeah video games are definitely my number one influence just throughout life you know before i started making art all i was doing was playing video games almost exclusively so it kind of was inevitable that that was the one thing I draw on more than anything else. Yeah, so our perspective would be like a designer dev. Like, we're the art first, right? Would you say that? We're the art story first? Definitely. I mean, visual... Like the whole thing is that, like, if I had to only do one thing, it would be something with visual art just because I'm so passionate about it. But I'm such a control freak, and, like, I, I love the, the power of being able to do the whole thing and just throw something down and be like, I did everything in this that I can't... I want to work with a team someday. I think it would be way less stressful, but I'm just like such a taskmaster. Like anybody deviates a little bit from my vision, I'd like get pissed off. So right now I'm still a one man show. Yeah, I'm the same way. So, so far, I think all the guests we've had so far are designers first and then, you know, having to learn the programming and all the other stuff. So I know we're going to have a guest, Ash Blue, um, who's an awesome programmer, software developer, so that we're going to get the programmer to designer perspective from him. But so we're probably coming in like a lot of people who have always wanted to do games, but we thought it was like we could never do it because the learning curve was too steep or the programming and stuff like that, right? Which I, that's how I was. Would you say you were in a similar? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I first started wanting to make games back in uh, 2004, 2005-ish, you know, with the rise of Newgrounds and everything. And I played Madness. And I'm like, someone just made a game, some random guy. You know, this isn't made by like a company. It's just on the internet. And that blew my mind. So I always wanted to do it. And I like bought a book on basic and started reading through that. And it was just like way over my head. And I always had self-esteem issues. So I would just like poo-poo myself. Like I'm too dumb. I can't do it. So I kind of just let that go and started doing like more art things. Cause that was kind of more my speed at the time. Um, but the reason I actually started doing this game is cause last November was my birthday when I turned 30 and I was like, I can't leave my twenties behind without doing something. And so I always wanted to make a game. So I was like, screw it. It's happening. Before I turn 30, I will have a playable product of some sort out because it's something I've always wanted to do. Uh, so for all of October, I did what's called DevTober. And I didn't even know I was doing it until halfway through. Uh, someone told me it was a thing. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm doing it. I made a vlog on one of my YouTube channels every month documenting putting this little demo of a game together. So like, you can go on my channel and watch the entire pretty much production of it from start to finish, going from just like a basic character that can jump to like a fully fleshed out product. Uh, oh, and I must say, I was super impressed with it as your first thing. That's why I told you personally. I was like, dude, you're natural. So thank you. 
tell us okay let's get into the grit now so the design the art that kind of stuff that's kind of in our blood right that's like okay we know how to do that definitely what's the thing in game development so far that's been like oh god it's really difficult or the thing that's giving you the headaches or twisting your mind up uh i think the thing that is the most difficult for me in terms of game design so far even just with uh because i to make to clarify my kind of journey so far is I started in an engine called Godot, which is like a free open source uh, game engine that's relatively new. It's a couple years old now, uh, but has a big kind of like cult following. You know how like all these free open source things always have a mm-hmm. huge like fervent, dedicated, zealous fan base online. Uh, so I was starting with that, and I started doing the coding language they have called GDScript, which is based on Python. And I started building the Azumi game in that for a while. And I was just running into so many roadblocks because the documentation for the engine, because it's so new, is really bad. It just kind of assumes you know Python or something already. It just says it's like Python except X. That was kind of the documentation process for Godot as it stands right now. So I was just totally lost. And I just decided to switch to something that was code free. And while that made it a lot easier, the thing that I have the most difficult with right now is just that computers are stupid. And it's very difficult for me to kind of sometimes tell the program what I want it to do. A lot of the times I'll just make assumptions. Like as I'll think about code like a human and I'm not thinking about it like a computer. You know, like computers are super literal. So a lot of the times I'll like make something that like in English makes sense. Like if you look at like the the actions, the events or the code, like if you're just reading it like English. Like, yeah, of course, but I'm making like English assumptions. So the computer needs to specifically be told, like, only do this once. Where like, if you just looked at it, you'd naturally just assume this has to be done once. But if you don't put that condition in, it just kind of like loops the timer indefinitely. Because like the condition's always true. So the timer's just going to restart infinitely. And for an hour, I'll be like, why is this not working? And they're like, oh, I'm, the computer's dumb. And I'm not thinking like a computer, I'm thinking like a human. And so that's the thing that's constantly tripping me up. It's just like, I have to kind of like, step back and be like, okay, I got to think about how programming actually works, not like how a human would interpret what I'm trying to do. You got to start counting from zero and thinking like a computer. Exactly. So there's there's two resources. I think there's two or three books with a similar name, but really helped me in this way, exactly as you're saying. It's called um, How to Think Like a Programmer. Ooh. And there's more than one, um, but I think both of them are good. But they just kind of, what they do in those books is just like, Hey, look, programming isn't about numbers. It's not about syntax and all this stuff. It's about uh, problem solving. So what you need to do is just look at what you're trying to do and break it down into the problems you're trying to solve. And then you figure out like what goes into your code and what needs to come out. And I just found it really, really helpful to think like a computer or think like a programmer. So if anybody's struggling with that, check those, how to think like a programmer. There's another book I started reading and I haven't delved too deeply into it, uh, but I just read like the introductory chapter and it was really interesting. It was, uh, I think it's called like the C sharp yellow book. It's like a free download you can get. Yeah. It's like an introduction to C sharp. And the whole first kind of chapter is just talking about like how to make programs and how to think programs through. And he's talking about how like the first thing you should do before you make any program is document everything that you need it to do in English. So when you go in to start coding, you don't just start typing. You just know like all the little small systems you need to work. So you can put those together and then put the entire application together out of those pieces that you've already kind of fleshed out in real language. Uh, It was an interesting way of thinking about it. It's kind of helped me uh, put together the game I'm working on now. Because right now, 
the vertical slice is done. The reaction to it on Newground stuff has been really good. So I want to go and make a full game, but I want to go back to the code that I have right now and optimize it, make everything kind of like modular. So like things I'll be reusing are like in functions and things like that. So it just works better. And I want to sit down and actually do that and just write out everything I need to make uh, just in English first. So I know all the systems I have to put together as opposed to just kind of doing a mad dash over the course of 30 days trying to get it out. Yeah, and I don't remember if it was in the book Clean Code or the Pragmatic Programmer, but um, where they talk, they talk about like creating your code, not just for you to understand, but other people, but also you in the future. Because what I found what happens and they, you know, they hammer on naming conventions for variables, for methods, for everything. So that when you read a method or a variable, you know what it is and what it does. Right. So it's right. about super descriptive names and like making them. It doesn't matter if they're long, as long as they're descriptive, because what happens, what happened to me is that I'll write some code. Everything works. It's logical. But maybe I didn't do the naming conventions, you know, the way I was supposed to. And then six months later, I look at that code and I have no idea how it works. Right. So. Uh, there's about, actually I'm running into a similar problem with the engine I have I'm using right now because constructs great, but there's a lot of limitations to it because it's kind of designed for like you know introduction to like how computer science and stuff works. And one of the things that they just released today that they didn't have before today was comments for individual actions. So I couldn't comment anything in the game that I've done so far. They just added like full featured comments today in an update. So I got to go back through all of my code and finally be able to add comments. So I'll remember how everything works. Maybe though, Tom, because you know, in the super geeky software engineering, like in uh, clean code, they say that you should write your code so that it doesn't need comments because mm, through level. the naming and through the order of the methods, like they, they say that the methods from top down, your code should be a story, like get this target, check distance from target so you can read it so you don't need comments. Sometimes you need them, of course, but it's just kind of getting in the philosophy. So like, hey, I'm going to make my code make sense through the code itself. That's pretty interesting because everybody I've talked to about code has always been like, if you don't comment, you're a little bitch and a little bitch and a little bitch. And I'm like, all so, right. I'm still pretty new, but from my perspective, that's kind of like kind of like an advanced novice thing. Yes. You know, like novice just writes sloppy code, doesn't comment anything. The naming is terrible. And then kind of the advanced novice is like writing sloppy code, but then they comment everything. And then maybe the more advanced is like, I just write clean code that doesn't need comments. Dude, the clean code sounds like a code samurai. You don't need comments. You're just fucking zen on that shit. Dude, sounds dude, awesome. when, you, when you start doing it, you know, it, it's like it makes so much sense. And it's just a little extra time. It's just laziness, really, that we don't do it. Because, you know, when you're, you're going through the code and, and you're like, I'm new to programming, so I'm excited when things work. I don't know if you're the same. Like there's oh, an absolutely. excitement. So I'm so excited just to move forward. You know, I don't want to take an extra 30 seconds to name the method or the variable, but man, you know, you don't have to do it at the time yeah. too. There's, there's this whole thing called refactoring. There's whole books you can get on it, but it's all about like, okay, you did your sloppy code. It works. Now let's refactor it. Let's go back through it, make it make sense, clean it up, all that stuff. So. Yeah, definitely. So another thing I want to ask you, cause this is something that happened to me. Um, cause you know, I started using visual scripting or non-programming techniques and I'm going to ask if you hit this wall yet and everything was great, you know, until I wanted to start to do more advanced stuff. And then I found that the pre-made actions and the things didn't do what I wanted it to do. Yeah. I'm starting to run against up against that wall right now. Uh, cause one of the things that's a huge problem with construct as an engine, as much as I love it, and I recommend it wholeheartedly to people who want to get into games and are like scared of it, uh, is that. 
it's it has functions, but they don't really work like actual functions because the way construct works is it has what's called event sheets. So you have triggers and then responses. So you have a list of like triggers and you can add, you know, what those triggers cause to happen in the game. Uh, And they have a function thing where the function is the trigger and then you can put responses in there and call that trigger whenever you want. But because certain uh, triggers can only can only be self-contained, like you can't just take a whole block of code and put it into a function. It all has to be from one trigger. So the functions are really gimped, and you have to kind of do some crazy workarounds to make functions actually function, for lack of a better word. So that's a huge problem because it means there's a lot of redundancies in your events and stuff because you can't just put everything into a function. And uh, the more I learn about actual programming, doing Python and stuff, the more I'm just like, this is like super baby mode. Like, you know, like I'm already thinking more like a programmer, like beyond what this engine probably really intended from the beginning. Uh, Another thing I want to do that I don't know if this engine is going to allow me to do is I want to have a dynamic scarf for Azumi. She's like this little raccoon character and she's a ninja. She has this big red scarf because I ripped off the PSU Shinobi. It's one of my favorite games ever. Uh, And I want to have like a scarf that kind of follows you around and like flows with you as you jump around and stuff and make it look cool. And I don't know if I can do that in this engine because I wouldn't even know where to start. And uh, that might be the one reason that I'll start coding more is because I want a dynamic scarf. Yeah, the wall you hit, because what happened to me, you know, I started using Playmaker, which is excellent. I still use it for my high-level um, design for managing states, like finite state machines, FSMs. That's what they were designed for. But um, I would hit these walls where I couldn't find the actions because um, Playmaker uses these things called actions. That's like their little modular blocks that you piece together as a non-programmer to make things work. Mm-hmm. And the actions that I wanted didn't exist. So I found myself waiting on developers. So then posting threads like, Hey, can someone make this, you know, to the people that develop playmaker or some other people that are making the actions. And so I found myself waiting around, you know, for something I wanted to do. And then I got into making my own actions. And then once you get into that, it forces you to start coding. And then I was like, well, why don't I just code everything, you know? And then um, exactly. But then that's what's pretty sweet about Playmaker is that it can interact with, you know, native C sharp and unity because like construct has no coding ability at all. I kind of wish I had used stencil. It's another kind of code free thing, but you can code in hacks in it on top if you want to do custom actions. So there's more flexibility there. But I didn't know that at the time. Uh, It's kind of a bummer, but I'm going to be a real programmer anyway. It's going to be fine. It's all going to be good. (laughs) Let me share some of my journey. And um so when I started, I went into 3D because I came from 3D animation. So I was like, oh, yeah, I know 3D. Let me go into 3D, right? Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I should have started <laughs> with 2D because so it's good. I think that you're starting with 2D because there's so much stuff that's so complicated that has nothing to do with the medium at all, like whether it's 2D or 3D. But then when you throw in 3D in that third dimension, it makes everything so much more complicated and difficult. So if anybody's starting out, I say go 2D first and like make a bunch of games in that and just get down how do triggers work? How does the basic 2D physics work before you try to go 3D physics? And I mean, everything else that comes along with game design. So so, so here's a question. I have a question for you because I'm curious about it because like I've, we've been talking back and forth a little bit about my Unity versus uh, Godot debacle, which I'm going to eventually go with. Um, a bunch of people are telling me that like the 2D in Unity is like a nightmare to work with. Would, are you, would you say that's true or is that overblown? So I've only done fake 2D. So I did a game, not Flip and Shop. I did one called Smashy Town. Um, it was fake 2D. So I, I used 3D characters in a 2D plane. 
So I use the 2D mode. So I haven't had any experience using the pure 2D. So, um, yeah, doing the fake, it was hacky, but it worked. Um, It's just because I had the experience. I mean, as long as it works. Yeah, I'd have to find someone um, that does 2D and Unity and try to get them on here. But, I mean, a lot of my favorite games that are 2D, like, what, like Nuclear Throne was Game Maker. You know, a lot of the games I liked weren't, you know, 2D weren't made in Unity, so... Right, right. Yeah, I don't know, but so let me ask you about your um your current Azumi project. Is it two D or three D or three D two D or something? It is. It is a two D game because it constructs a two D engine. Uh, but all the the characters are all based on three D models, and I'm exporting PNGs, and then I'm indexing the colors in like Photoshop, so they just compress down. To, like I think because I'm trying to model it after a Sega Genesis game because that was my first console, and I will die before I give up my Sega. Um, so the Sega, from what I read, can support up to 15 colors and transparency on a sprite. So I based, uh, the limited palettes for all the 3d model exports around that. So when you compress them down, they look like Sega sprites. And then I put those into the engine. So, uh, all the characters in the game are 3d models, but they're just obviously exported to be working in a 2d engine. So it gives you a lot of flexibility with like animation and stuff. Cause like if a frame doesn't look right, it's easy to go back in and quickly change it, uh, which is helpful just cause I'm not a great 2d animator, but with 3d, I find 3d animation to be a bit easier uh, just in terms of like my ability to visualize things. Plus it's easier to find references. Cause like with 2d references, you have to make sure the, the, uh, you get like a sky swinging a sword, right? You search Google for that. And if it's not the exact right angle you want to draw it from as a reference, it's not 100% great. But with 3D, it doesn't matter what the angle is. You can rotate the model once you've used your reference and have it line up exactly the way you want. So plus the great thing about doing Sega Genesis kind of sprites is that like three or four frames of animation is like on point and it saves some time. And you can kind of, you know, fudge things if you're not a great animator like i am whereas if i was doing something like ori in the blind forest i'd be doomed because it would mean you need god to your animation to make it look right yeah i think um I, I should go back on my current project i am doing the menus and some of the ui stuff using pixel art and pixel art animations and i would just say that there is kind of a um the workflow as far as like importing sprite animations and then converting them to uh like animatable objects is kind of clunky without any third-party tools but there are free third-party tools that like streamline that process so yeah i've used some i'm using uh pixar animations in my current game and it's pretty smooth if you use those free tools or just like github tools you know yeah, all the tile sets and the backgrounds were all done in 2D. It was just the characters in the game that are 3D. So I'm kind of mashing both things together. But, you know, you should just do a weekend project in, in Unity 2D. You know, just make like a, a guy run around or something just to see what it's like, you know? Yeah, there's actually a game because I, we talk- I was talking with some friends because have I have a whole Discord server called I Am Games based around my YouTube channel and stuff. We were talking about doing a game jam. There's a game I want to do called Ninja Suffering, where it's just uh, endless platforms. It's a ninja. You have like a stamina bar that doesn't regenerate, and it's just eventually you're going to die. And uh, you just have to keep jumping from platform to platform, see how far you can get. That'd be a good project to try out for that, maybe. Yeah. Um, early on, when I first started using Unity, I think I did a couple game jams, and that really is a good thing just to force you to ship something you know get get through it and not like dawdle on it and try to make it perfect while also learning i think it's a great way to learn to do little game jam projects week-long projects or something yeah my 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 big issue i don't even say it's an issue but just like 
an issue I'm putting on myself is that I'm trying to work on the full game of Azumi, learn more 3D because I'm everything's based on 3D. I'm trying to learn like proper topology and stuff. And I'm trying to learn like actual programming. So I'm splitting my weeks up into like two day sprints of like jumping through each of these things. And it's like, oh, it's a lot to do. But it all comes down to serving the uh, the big end goal is like, I want to make a big 3D PlayStation 2 style action adventure game with Azumi. That was like the game I envisioned when I created the character, but I'm working my way up there slowly. It's okay. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm making right now, my God Machine game. It's a giant 3D platformer rpg blah 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 it's tough man that's why i made this podcast because it's so hard i was like i want to talk to other people and see what they're doing <laughs> so you're gonna find yep. answer to these questions and a lot of it let me ask you this how are you doing like your level planning your level layout how are you are you writing out the events that happen in your game like fight this guy get this item are you drawing maps how do you plan to do that or how, are you, how have you been doing that so i'm 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 really super anal about pre-production like my my problem with a lot of the stuff i've done because i've been trying to like finish projects for years and i always stall out and it's because i get lost in pre-production i have a whole google drive folder of like 10 years worth of design documents for projects and comics and animations and everything so when it came to this project i had a month to get it done so i couldn't lull in that too long but everything was documented i had tons of different like drawn designs for how i wanted the map to work it was kind of ended up being kind of like a, a funnel there's like a safe zone right at the bottom in the middle of the uh, space where none of the enemies spawn but everything else you can potentially get hit uh i had like a checklist of all the things i wanted to get it done in the game going from like essential to optimal to like optional and i kind of ranked all those uh have you ever heard of oh, what's it called uh scrum i read a book on scrum which is kind of like a agile software development thing yeah it's like agile so they talk about like instead of uh trying to say how much time each task is going to take uh weight everything using like the fibonacci sequence because like easier to tell those like difficulty rankings apart like random like one two three five seven whatever uh so i would assign a number ranking to each of these problems i would say i need to get like 10 points done a week and then i'd brush out my whiteboard and every day like this many points today this many points today and so every day i would just like wake up knowing exactly what i need to do and just like bust my ass to get it done and uh i went over a couple days but it, it most of it got done in that 30 day yeah, can you sprint. can you talk more about that because just today i was like because i have a friend who worked for atlassian or one of these companies and he managed some project had to do with scrum and he was showing it to me um for managing other projects and just today i was like man i should probably check out using scrum for game yeah. development so how scrum. are you using it yeah so i mean i i'm I, t I would be lying if i said i adopted scrum 100 because it was a very small scale project and the book that i read scrum was initially designed for teams so a lot of the things that scrum talks about is like you have a bunch of people come together and like the consensus is where like waiting for difficulty and stuff comes from because you kind of assess how your team is comfortable with all these things so it's kind of difficult at least from that book for me to translate into a solo operation but it was just about um segmenting everything that i needed to get done for the game because from the very beginning i knew that i didn't know anything about level design yet i hadn't read anything good on that um and i was trying to think about like what makes a level fun because uh, just because the way I play video games personally, like I don't really ever think much about the levels. I'm much more interested in mechanics in games. Uh, so like I have tons of videos me talking about like the combat in Dark Souls 1 is like five milliseconds too slow and it feels like you're wading through molasses. Like those are the things that like I'm anal about. 
But the level design stuff is always an afterthought to me. So when it comes down to like making a level, I was like, I don't know enough how to do this yet. So I'm just going to do a little arena for the demo. So I don't have to think about that too much. Um, so once I had the scope planned out, it was just all the little things. I would just uh, write it all out. I wanted to make sure everything was on paper and I knew what the game needed. I knew Azumi needed uh, aerial combat, needed a projectile, needed a three hit combo on the ground. Had to have running. Uh, there were some things I ended up cutting. Like there's a crouch state in the uh, in the demo, but it doesn't do anything because at the end of the, by the end of the thing, I was like, I'm not going to use this for anything anyways. Um, so it's just kind of for me, it's about not worrying about time. I think that's like the big takeaway from Scrum is that it's about assessing uh, difficulty. And there's a concept called a minimum deliverable product. I think someone actually mentioned that on a previous podcast because um, that's from Scrum uh, where it's about identifying how difficult all the elements of your project are going to be and then figuring out what are the most essential and you do that first. Because the idea from Scrum is that like it's a response to the waterfall method of designing software and things like that where you kind of like plan everything out by dates. That was kind of like the general consensus before Scrum came around. And you'd plan out like an entire year or two years or five years of time. And that was great. It looked great on paper. But if you slip in the beginning, your entire five-year structure completely falls apart. You know, because then the next one will take longer. That'll push everything back. And then your whole big plan is ruined. So Scrum was designed not to use time because it's, it's the guy was saying, like, people are terrible at uh, estimating time. We always yeah. do it incorrectly. So instead look at difficulty, like how difficult is this task going to be? And then the team would usually come together and decide what's the minimum viable product that we need to deliver to our customers. And then based on feedback from them, what they like and what they don't like, we can begin to tweak and adjust and figure out what needs to be added, what needs to be removed, and what needs to continually to be focused on. So it's kind of about putting the essentials together first, and then getting rapid response from whoever's going to be using it. So in our case, you know, we'd probably, in this Discord group is a great example, you would maybe have a, a small vertical slice or a prototype uh, with just the bare essentials of like your project. And be like, okay, how do people feel about this? And then you can instantly change them if things are janky or not feeling right. So you can adjust those immediately as opposed to having a 10-year plan or whatever, having this broken combat system, and then 10 years later when you finally ship the thing, you realize, oh, the combat's completely messed up. What was the name of the book that you read on Scrum? I believe it was just Scrum. It was by the guy who made a, uh, the system. But there are I'm definitely other... That. Dude, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty so, sick. So let me, let me give you this example. So what I've been using for like my daily, what do I need to do today? And I'm going to tell you why I think it's broken and how this can fix it. I use Hack and Plan. So it's like this Trello alternative that's made just for game development. And it just has tasks, but it's like what you need to do, um, what's in progress, what's finished, right? So, but there is no way, like you're talking about the waiting to wait the task. So all the tasks are equal. So let's just say I have three tasks, right? And I'm working on this task for three days. And in my head, oh, this is a single task. It shouldn't take this long, right? And right. it feels like it's weighing me down in my project. But if it had a weight, right? If I knew it was like all these points and I'd be like, it's fine because this thing's like 50 points or whatever. Exactly. I mean, one of the big concepts of Scrum that I didn't really do so much because my I knew I had 30 days to do it. But if you're doing a longer term project, this is great. It's a concept called sprints. So a sprint in Scrum is usually one to two weeks. And you'd assign all those points. You'd have all your, your uh, 
your difficulty things, you choose the optimal things to work on, and then everybody goes off and does their shit. And then two weeks later, everybody comes back and you basically reflect on the work done. So like, let's say uh, we're going to get 50 points done in two weeks. If we only get 30 points done, it's like, well, okay, now we know for the next sprint, we got to shoot for 30 points because 50 is way too much. We're going to screw ourselves over We shoot for 50 again. Uh, so it lets you quickly adjust your workload and figure out, okay, this is how much... Uh, I can get done in this amount of time. So waiting was a huge big thing for me because when I had my weekly and daily waits, I would know that like I can afford to spend an entire day on this one thing and I'll still have time to get everything else done. Whereas if I just kind of guessed, because like a lot of the things that I thought would be simple ended up not being so simple and vice versa. You know, bugs can like completely screw you over when you expect something to be really simple. But again, for me, I'm not thinking like a programmer. I'm thinking like, you know, an artist. So something that I think is simple is actually going to take way longer. Uh, so by being able to quickly reflect on those things, it helps kind of, uh, you iterate quicker and you work better in the long run that way. If you still have it, you think you could take a screenshot of like just your list with some weights on some tasks when you post in the show notes? Mm, I can dig for it. I just moved out of uh, where I was when I was working on the game. So it's somewhere in a box, but if I find it, I will, I will definitely okay. let you know. For me, a lot of times, you know, to see these things, like what people are actually doing, like their tasks and how they, you know, notate them or whatever is really helpful because you, you read about the stuff and it's like, but wait, how, what, how does it actually, you know, how are you executing it? So, yeah, I mean, everything I do is usually on paper. Uh, I'm, I'm really big into like the tactility of writing things down. Like there's, I've read it somewhere and it could be total bullshit, you know, everything on the internet, but like you, your brain tends to remember things better if you handwrite it than type it. Uh, so I find that by just by handwriting things, either like on the whiteboard or on paper, it kind of puts it in my mind better and helps me more clearly understand what I'm doing. Or if I type things a lot of the times, I'll be typing on the computer, but I'll be thinking about Twitter or something other than the work at hand. So your um, so your level designs you're drawing on paper. Uh, yeah, that's uh, they're all probably going to start on paper. Like the one that I did for this little arena, it all started on paper. I had like three or four different sketches for it and eventually I settled on one and then I started porting that into the engine. So let's say, are you gonna have any non-linearity? So let's, are you gonna go back to areas you've been before with new items that can unlock things and stuff like that? Or are you gonna go linear? Uh, I think I'm gonna, in the, in the idea of staying true to the Sega kind of mindset, I'll probably be a more linear level-based game. Uh, just because it'll probably be simpler for me to put together for because it's still my first game technically, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because I was gonna say um, this is one of the things that is really I find really hard to manage with drawing out your level designs, your maps. If oh, you yeah. have like let's say a door in level zero that's locked, and you get something in level six, and you come back to zero to you know a key, whatever the key may take its form as. But to actually draw out your levels and track all those different things, especially if you have multiple. Right. And when you have like not just not difficulty gating so much, but like item gating, like let's look at like Zelda Link to the Past, like uh, parts where you get the Titan's Mitt, where you can pick up these rocks like later on, how you map all those different items out that can unlock different areas. Yeah, it's uh, I found stuff like that really tough to manage, like the low level game design. That's why dude, I wanted that to make this podcast. That stuff is sorcery to me. Like, I'm, I know I'm like super late to the party on this, but like my friends finally convinced me to play Dark Souls 1 like three weeks ago. And I was playing Dark Souls. I'm like, how in God's name do they make this map? It's like witchcraft, how everything just kind of loops back in on itself. And you can just like go like, you can just walk. Like, it feels like you're going away from like the first area of Firelink Shrine for like three hours. And then you take an elevator and you're right back where you started. It's like, 
how did that even yeah happen? i felt the same way and then i looked into the history i mean from software you know i played all the armored core games it have been around forever but they right. pretty much made the dark souls game like seven times before that one you know through demon souls and all these other games that were a lot like it so absolutely through practice you know they just iterated on that design for so long they're masters you know so when we're noobs and we look at it we're just like <laughs> oh my god how do you do this but it's just yeah, I just like, well, Demon Souls 1 and 2 or 3 or however they made. And then there's like a first person weird one before that. But it's kind of the same kind of dungeon thing. Yeah, uh, Kingsfield, right? For the PS1? Yeah. So Dude, if you if you want to have like a, your mind blown, uh, there's somewhere online. I forget where it is. I can probably find the link somewhere. Someone ripped the entire Dark Souls map and update and uploaded it. So you can just kind of look through it like in a 3D sort of turnaround thing. Oh, the wow. entire map of Dark Souls. You can just like see it from like, you know, a god's eye view sort of thing it was really cool yeah that that's like i mean those are like the master's tricks you know you right. have to yeah have a certain experience level in game design i imagine to do that kind of stuff definitely it's goals so, though dude hashtag goals because <laughs> those are the things that like uh i've said on every episode so far and that's one of the reason i started this because you look into game design and what's available in books and online, and there's a lot of high-level stuff. You you know you see stuff about um, game design documents, which is all this information that's done before anything is prototyped or made, and it's very high-level. But the low-level, like the grit, like the stuff I was talking about, how do you link that lock to that key in level seven, and how are you drawing your maps and tying it together? So, um, one of the most useful things that that I learned about through um, my friend Ash, who we're going to have on the show, is that Artisy, Artisy Draft I was telling you about, the program I think we were talking about. And so yeah, I yeah. post I post some screen caps of it in the podcast show notes or the off topic, if anyone wants to look in the text channels. But that's helped a lot. But um, it doesn't seem like, because, you know, from the other things we've worked in, uh, it's all like you, you can learn a workflow. Like you want to make an animation, okay, write a script, storyboard it, model your stuff. Like, you know, there's this known workflow that's shared universally. But for games, I haven't really found that. Have you found anything like that? No. I mean, one of the things I'm focusing on a lot right now is uh, I'm trying to learn more about level design, learn more about that low-level stuff. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the podcast is called. It's the, the nitty-gritty stuff. It's, it's, what, it's what makes your game work. And uh, I just – the reason I didn't try and do anything more with levels – in the vertical slice that I made, I just made a little arena. I was like, I don't want to, I'd rather have no level than a crappy level. You know, I don't want to go in this and just kind of guess. Uh, I don't know what makes levels fun yet. I don't know how to, to make it all tied together behind the scenes. And it's just like this arcane wizardry that all the masters like FromSoft know that if it gets out, like their secret sauce is gone. So they got to keep it behind lock and key, you know? You and, know, I think something that's important too that you're doing is that you're doing it based on a Genesis game. So an older game before all this fancy, like crazy stuff came in with like roguelikes and blah, blah, blah in the design, you know, cause um, something I found really helpful. If anyone wants to check out um, on archive.org, they have all the Nintendo power back issues and the Nintendo power issues, like break down all the old Nintendo entertainment system games. But from a designer's perspective, they're awesome because it's all the rooms, it's all the maps. It's like, here's the key, here's the lock. And, you know, all the fancy stuff that has in today's games is stripped away. It's just the basics. And I found that really, really useful for level design to look at those and how they work and their basic mechanics. Yeah, that sounds pretty rad. I'll definitely have to check that out. 
Yeah, so I think maybe for us as beginners, we should be looking at the older games that were simpler, you know, because they still have the same roots. It's just on top of it now is all these other layers of complexity with stuff that's going on. So, yeah, I mean, I think with older games, it's just because they're so much simpler, it's kind of easier to kind of peek behind the curtain because there's not so much obscuring it. It's just like a very simple, uh, the technology is so simple that like the mechanics kind of shine through a lot more because they had to rely on those more. So they're kind of more upfront. There's not like super crazy cinematic, like lifelike visuals obscuring the fact that like, oh, you got to shimmy through this tunnel because it's an actual loading screen or things like that. It's a lot more, uh, less obtuse, I suppose. Yeah, the mechanics are just much more visible. Yeah. So as learners, we can go in there and learn from them. So um, thanks for being on, Tom. This has been an awesome episode. And uh, is there any final things you want to leave with the other game developers or people who are going to jump into game development like you did? Something something you would change? Something you do different? Anything like that? Um, I just don't wait 10 years like i did to start making games like i think the great thing now is like there's so many options technology wise that no matter what your skill level is you can make games like i did a video on my uh, youtube channel a couple days ago said if you really love games you should make one because making this game has taught me so much about not just like games from a creative standpoint but as a player because one of the most interesting things for me about uh making this game is I had to really reverse engineer what I liked about games. You know, normally when you play a game, if you don't like it, you just throw it away. Mm -hmm. But 90% of the time the Azumi game was being built, it didn't play well and I didn't like it. So I couldn't just throw it away. It was my game. I had to sit down and figure out, okay, what do I like about games and why do I like it? And how do I make that happier? Uh, and it was a really interesting experiment to kind of say, oh yeah, hit stop. Never knew that was a thing, but that's like super imperative to like my enjoyment of games is like making hits feel super cathartic and like having the screen shake and having the the flash when they get hit and having some hit stop, like all these little things that I never knew about that uh, just re reinforced my taste as a player and as a developer. It was really cool. Yeah, I think that's an important thing. I find I'm kind of the same way. Mine's with knockback, like knocking yeah. the enemies into stuff um but that's a super important point about because what i found a bad thing i'm doing sometimes is i just start putting things in my game that i don't even like but i'm like i need to do this because it's a game mm. so i sh i need to yeah. get back to like yeah i don't like that so why should i have it right it's our game like absolutely i'm trying i'm trying to make my favorite kind of game you know and uh it's it's easy to kind of like put things in there and like especially because like i got tons of comments on the newgrounds upload and there are tons of people saying well you should do this the controls are like really floating they don't feel great other people would say the controls are perfect you change it i'll kill you and just like i just gotta like keep my head down and like take all that with a grain of salt and make sure when it's done like this if i was 10 years old again and i had my sag in front of me and i threw this cart in there it would be my favorite game and i'd still have it with me to this day so that's kind of the goal I think that's a super important point to leave with people. Like, yeah, make the game your 10-year-old self would be excited about. Yeah. Can't go wrong. So uh, we'll post uh, that link and the link to your YouTube and everything else in the show notes. So if anybody wants to go check out Tom's stuff, please do. And so thanks for being on the Game Dev Grid Podcast. Hope to have you on again. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right.